Hi, thank you for listening to this episode of the Following Films Podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and into the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today we are joined by the director, Roddy Bogawa, to discuss his work on the new documentary film, Have You Got It Yet? The Story of Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd. Sid and Pink Floyd crystallized a cultural moment where anything seemed possible, but where that freedom could come with a cost. Was Sid just another drug casualty? Did he suffer from an undiagnosed mental condition? Or did he dislike the attention and fame as the fun turned to work? While there are no clear answers, which might be the case, there is the feeling by all, all those around Sid, that something went terribly wrong. Have You Got It Yet is a chronicle and mosaic of Barrett's creative and destructive impulses, his captivating presence and absence, a portrait of the complex puzzle that was his life. But before we dive into our conversation with Roddy, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and in the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film, music, or movie collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. There's always something truly wonderful to discover. Oh, uh, have you followed the Following Films podcast on Spotify? If you have, well, thank you. If you haven't, please head over to Spotify, search for Following Films, and give us a follow. It really does help the show. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Roddy about Have You Got It Yet? The story of Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd. The film is currently playing in theaters everywhere. For more information, go to SidBarrettFilm.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> there we go. I, I have made that mistake in the past, and I promise I will never let that happen again. So, <laughs> so uh, you've been doing this, talking about this film a lot now, and um, the first thing I was struck by um, was just this feels like the absolute film that people need to see right now uh, because it's dealing so much with isolation and the feelings of loneliness that we have and this real um you know the a literal world health crisis that we're on the verge of right now dealing with isolation that we all are about to experience and i think this is something a story we've been sort of somewhat familiar with in the background any fan of music has been at least for you know the past 30 years um so Talk to me about the relevance of this story today and what those conversations wow. are hearing. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that no, that's um, listen. I'm going to steal that of line from you. <laughs> I, you know, I absolutely, you know, now that you say that, you know, that's probably a major thing with how people are emotionally responding to the film. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, I, I went out for the West coast screenings, you know, I was here for the first New York opening weekend and people were coming up to me afterwards. And there's, you know, they were saying, I don't really, I didn't really know very much about Sid Barrett, you know, and of course I was lured in by the Pink Floyd stuff and I knew a bit and crying, you know, so you're, you're, wow, you're really, you nailed it on the head, which is, you know, um, which is uncanny because I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's this thing about, 
you know, the people you haven't seen, right? That, that was one of the elements of the film that Storm and I talked about, you know, that it's like a long, you know, it's a long lost friend. It's a letter to a long lost friend and, and sort of the memory of being together at a certain period in their lives, right? We, we always wanted it to be really intimate. Um, you know, we crafted the questions together to try and hit really specific memories and, and try and open those doors. But, you know, that's a, fa that's a fascinating observation because, uh, you know, uh, here I thought it was the film was a great dramatic structure. It but is. You, 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 but, you're, but you're right, though. It's probably tapping into, you know, you know, I always hope my films are universal triggers in some ways. Yeah. Like, I always dream that that's the goal, you know, that, that the film is good or bad. It comes out at the right time or the wrong time. But I always hope that they'll, you know, they'll talk about the content and the subject matter, but then open up so people will think about themselves. You know, uh, the, the film that I did about punk rock, my friend who's a different generation told me she cried and she said she thought about the whole hippie scene and how it failed. You know, so I kind of always hope my films have that kind of emotional register and breadth. But I think, you know, that's very, very interesting that this film coming out right now post the pandemic post all the isolation is another layer of that emotional kind of connection to the story. Well, um, so that's uh, unintentional. You <laughs> didn't plan the pandemic nor taking the film, taking this long to come out, but uh, nor did I plan it coming out on the weekend of Barbie and Oppenheimer, but it's <laughs> everybody's, you know, everybody's like Barbie Oppenheimer sin now. <laughs> it's like, well, it's the counter counter programming. So Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, you look at the line, there's a line towards the end of the film that really just grabbed me where he's talk. they're talking about, I should have checked in more often. You know, what would that have meant to to him? What would that have meant to me if I just would have gone down and had a cup of tea and sat in and checked in and all this time period where he was there and I could have done it. If I wrote it off as this, you know, kind of, I'm not supposed to go there. I'm not wanted, but I've yet to go to a funeral at this point in my life where I've said, yeah, I, I did everything I could. I, I was there every moment I wanted to be. There's always that feeling of regret that you have when you see a loved one pass. And, you know, we're doing that more and more, the more that we even beyond the, you know, sort of isolation from the pandemic, the more that we end up inside our technology, the more that we are distant from the ones that we love and we have this connection with. So, yeah, I think this is absolutely a relevant film. And I think whether you're conscious of that part of it or not, I think you're absolutely tapping into it. Well, yeah, you know, that was, I did this film on Storm and the, the, the whole take that I had on that was, you know, thinking about when I was young and how important vinyl records were to <laughs> my friends and I, you know, that literally yeah, that was, yeah, we look, you know, we would look at them and study what clothes we wanted to try and buy, you know, in the thrift stores, how our hair was going to be and whatever. And, you know, we would trade them and play music to each other. So it was a real, you know, kind of a shared experience. And so a lot of when I approached the film on Storm, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, okay, what are we losing from, you know, trading iPod digital libraries versus, you know, being able to play a record, sit down and play a record, track a record for somebody, start to finish, you know, and how that rippled through culture. Um, you know, and, and I was working in 16 millimeter movie film while digital technology was coming in. And I was still collecting vinyl records, even though I had started buying CDs. So there was all these things that I think, uh, you know, technology was shifting culture and, and leading towards more isolation. The pandemic kind of ramped it up by tenfold. 
you know, but I think, you know, certainly technology has pushed us to that. I think that's, you know, I, I, I think that's why Lollapalooza and Coachella and these things are still really popular. Glastonbury, you know, it's the one site where the music then is the thing where everybody can feel the presence of each other, you know, again. Uh, but it saddens me that you don't sit around, you know, at a dinner party. I mean, I do this. I torture my friends at dinner parties and go, wait a minute, you got to hear this record and i put yeah. it on and I, I force just, force them to listen to something <laughs> same but, here the, the number of times that if some somebody brings up a uh, cormac mccarthy and i'll be like oh well there's a concept record by the singer from lucero that you need to check out that's incredible it's this little ep you can't really find it. it's out of print now but here's a copy of it and yes i annoy the shit out of people with that stuff but i get that that's the so even if somebody is just uh, entertaining me by putting up with my crap, at the very least, maybe there's that connection that they can see beyond that. Uh, that part yeah, that. no, I mean there was there was a band that you know I bought a CD of on the street. There, there was a place in New York where you could buy stolen goods. Not that mm-hmm. I freak, frequented the stolen good place, but you know it was when Nirvana had hit and Sub Pop was really big, and I mm-hmm. found this CD for a dollar, and it was this band Codeine. And they, you know, really interesting band. They they were probably the first slow core band. And I was listening to this record incessantly. And at a dinner party, I said, I have to play one song for everybody. And I put it on my stereo, blasted it. And the most amazing thing was my friend uh, said to me, she said, I went to school with those guys. Do you want to get in touch with them? And I was like, I absolutely do. I want to, yeah. you know, two, two songs in my movie. And literally through that dinner party, they came to my place, looked at a cut of my film, and gave me permission to use a couple songs on my in my soundtrack. So you know, you never know. <laughs> you might be torturing somebody, but then you might all of a sudden, you know, find a, a route to bypass the record industry and well, get some well, music. There, there was something about that. I think probably similar, if not the exact same background with a uh, you know the DIY punk rock scene growing up with that, and something that was just that connection that you would find that I remember finding tapes from people that are little EPs bands that I saw live and then actually calling the number that they had put down on there for their record label. And it was some dude's mom answered the phone yeah. and like, Hey, <laughs> there's a guy calling about this, you know, that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, cause you're I'm putting together a zine and trying to do interviews for it and that kind of thing. And that was just that demystification of the record industry at that point, that it just made everything feel so connected and and just right there. And I think, yeah, uh, no, it's true. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, uh, started playing in a band in high school. And this is like the cliche, but it was, you know, absolutely true. All the English bands that were coming over were the same age as the audience. And they literally, they would open up the, you know, the the dressing room and you go in there and they would just be like, you guys got to start your own band. They would all of it, you know, cross the board. They all said that, you know, I'm like you start your band. And it was, it was kind of amazing. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, it, it really, I can say, testify firsthand that that, tr- that story was true, that these bands were coming over saying, you know, we're changing stuff. We're going to we're going to shake this all up, you know, and you should, you know, just just pick up a guitar and figure out a couple of chords. That's it. So does that explain some of the people that you had interviews with here with like Catherine Wheel and Blur and those guys and that, that sort of that? The some of those artists that I was familiar with, those were the people that I was listening to. Those were the, the those English bands that came over sort of when I was in high school. Yeah, I mean, and they're all musicians that covered Sid. Yeah, you know, that's, that's true. the other thing. Yeah, so MGMT played Lucifer Sam. I think it was on the Jilly, Jimmy Fallon show. Uh, the Mars Volta has a B side of Candy and a Current Bun. 
And, and a lot of these bands, it's interesting. And I think it's, you know, why musicians love Sid's music. You know, they just, you know, there's such a varied range of bands that have covered Sid. And they do think of him as like, one, you know, the proto-punk rocker in some yeah. way. Um, you know, just just in terms of song structure and noise. Um, Thurston Moore saw, came and saw my film in, in London and we sat around for like three hours afterwards. And I was like, oh, I get it. I see now Sonic Youth, you know, doing all this noise in the middle of this pop structure. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's interesting, you know, to, to, to see uh, what musicians think. I mean, Chris Cornell was playing Sid Barrett stuff from the last Temple of the Dog tour. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and he would say in the show, I mean, they're on YouTube, he'd say, this is a Sid Barrett song. You know, it, it's, I wonder if the audience then goes like, who's Sid Barrett? You know, but Temple of the Dog playing a Sid Barrett track. It's pretty, pretty out there. Well, I want to throw something out to you. I, I had this sort of realization about myself in listening to Pink Floyd side by side. The stuff that I the 70s stuff is kind of what I got into first is what I listened to. And it was, you know, there was the earlier stuff, the Sid Barrett stuff that I was familiar with, but it was always this other that, you know, I really didn't explore too much. And I think when I was younger, I th the thing that drew me to that mid section of Pink Floyd was that it was already broken at that point. It was heartbroken. Um, but then when I would go back now and, you know, middle-aged man, and I listened to the early stuff that really connects with me in a much deeper way, because this is heartbreaking. This is somebody that you can hear lightness still in their hearts, but you can also hear this outlook that just has a kind of a, a dire, you know, if you vegetable man, you look at the lyrics to that and it's a really poppy sounding song, but then there's this, you pay attention to the lyrics and it's just, my God, who can't understand that feeling there. So it's just, it's that combination of emotions that is a little bit more complex to me. It's not that, the later stuff wasn't complex, but it's just something about that that really resonates with me in a way I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was never one of those Pink Floyd fans, you know, like, like I said, the first show I saw was animals tour, but yeah. I was never, I was never a Pink Floyd fan that said, I like this period better than this period. I mean, I always thought there was, it was an interesting trajectory of the whole band, like almost like their entire career is a conceptual concept album. <laughs> you know, if you think about each yeah. record as a track, you know, they, they, they go off in this direction and they, you know, when Sid leaves, they do a couple of more experimental records and then all of a sudden, you know, they hit metal and then they, you know, start figuring out the sound, you know, so, so it's interesting if you track the, the arc of their band, you know, that it does sort of map out uh, a curious kind of, you know, portrait of, of all of them. Maybe it's a group portrait in some way, but it, but it's interesting because I, you know, I always think of it like, wow, these are, they're not, I don't see them as distinct. I don't see them as that's the Sid era. That's the Roger and Dave era. That's the Roger. Era, that's the Dave era. I don't see Like I see it like, wow, it's kind of changing, you know, as, as the, the band keeps going and they kept going, you know, they're the, you know, um, but I think in much more of a conceptual way than maybe other bands that have stayed around as long as they have. Oh, for it, they, uh, it never feels like they're reaching for something that isn't them um, where they're changing with the whims of the times where it's like, Oh, remember Pink Floyd's disco record or something like that. Or remember <laughs> like those kinds yes. of things that did, it just felt like they were doing it's in that way. It's almost like walking down a long hallway that has a ton of family portraits in it. And you can see everybody yeah. when they were kids. And then you can see them when they were in middle school and high school and in college. And then you can see like other people kind of drop out and other people show up. And it's kind of like walking down that long hallway that I guess just 
is what is a life and it's in the end um so yeah. is that one album or is that a series of you know yeah. snapshots so it's i don't know it's interesting to look back at now though yeah storm did an image i can't remember what it was for but he did an image where the album covers were like uh bed sheets and they're all hung on a clothesline like and i always thought that was beautiful you know i was like ah yeah it's their dirty linen basically <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it, it good art should be you know really <laughs> yeah so i, I guess uh you you, you kind of have uh, the the before it goes in the hamper and then when it's drying afterwards you know that kind of <laughs> exactly. thing so you can have both sides so talk about the idea if you could about injecting um sid's style and his voice into this film because i feel like there is an attempt from just not only the visual sense of it, but the way you edit it and the way you dole out the information that this is, mm -hmm. you're very conscious of trying to tap into something that is very Sid Barrett the whole time. That's great that you pick up on that. I mean, I always hope, you know, and I, I can't say there's many films that I can hold up as positive examples, but I always hope that if you do a movie, you know, about an artist that you try and, make something that is somewhat comparable, you know, that, that, you know, really like the, and maybe, you know, Storm used to talk about that too. He used to say when he did a, an image for a record cover, he tried to parallel the music. He never tried to illustrate the music, but I always thought of it in a different way with the films, which is like, you know, if you have access to a certain, you know, kind of material, that you do try and get in the get in the voice, you know, of the of the character in some ways, and it should be reflective, uh, somewhat, you know, either in tone or emotion or, you know, in in my case, I like open ended films, so you know, yeah. leaving the story, not connecting all the dots, not having it all be, you know, all wrapped up in a bow. Um, that's my particular thing around that. So yeah, so the, you know, there there is this idea to try and make moments of reflection in the film and, you know, simulate in some way, like you're saying some kind of process. Uh, there, there's also the spine of imagery in the film that was Storm's short film that he did for Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is his portrait of Sid growing up as a little kid becoming kind of hipster and then the split characters uh, and then ending up alone in the swimming pool, sweeping up flowers. So when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is beautiful, man. I, Amazing this, this, imagery. My yeah, God. I was like, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's like a Storm Thurgeson, you know, concept record cover. And I said, this is the whole film, Storm. We should, you know, at one point we were, we were talking about scripting out a whole movie like that and redoing the whole thing. Uh, but, his, but his health went south. But, you know, so we, we lucked out and we had that. And we lucked out because timing-wise – Pink Floyd had just put out the early years box set. Yeah. And I'm, I'm friends with Lana Topham, who's their film archivist. And she called me up. She said, you're very fortunate, Roddy, because we've remastered everything. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookman's. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookman's, I found a copy of the 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time. 
captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance, and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature. The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. And so you're going to, you know, you're going to benefit from the, so it looks, people think I shot it, you know, cause it looks so beautiful, you know, and Lonnie, Lana's such an impeccable archivist that it's like really great looking, you know, but, but it's actually a film from quite a long time ago. So, you know, the band would play Shawnee Crazy Diamond and they would project this behind them. And so, you know, I, I wanted to have that as the spine throughout, uh, you know, not doing it necessarily as a reenactment, but maybe as kind of a, you know, a poem to sit in some I, way. I literally had that written down as a question for how you were able to recreate the style of that era so accurately <laughs> and get the clothes and haircuts. It's always there's something that feels just a little bit off when you do that because I I legitimately thought you had shot this stuff, um, this footage. So yeah, wow, that's yes, it, it's, it's impeccable that footage. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of it I shot. You know, the the uh, plum and the matchbox. We shot that. We shot okay. the we shot the tape recorder that bookends the film. Sure. I bought a tape recorder on eBay, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so some of those things we shot, but yeah, we didn't, we didn't want to recreate when I saw that footage, I was like, that's going to be the spine just interspersed, you know, and so great. What a, what an amazing thing. And and I, I love that about the film that you have that openness to this because it just, despite it being highly specific about this individual person, because you're making it that specific. I think when you do that, that's why it becomes this universal film because it feels honest in a way that everybody that I know has been touched by something similar to this at some point in their lives. There's not a family that doesn't have at least 
one branch where there's that, you know, it, whether it's in your immediate family or that cousin or that person that you know that has suffered with something like this or is currently suffering with something like this. And the conversation has shifted greatly since I was a kid to where it is now, but we have a long way to go. And I think films like this are very important in drawing this conversation to the surface. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, and I think, you know, it's, it goes back to something you said earlier, Christopher, you know, when you said, you know, there's always the question of what did I do? What, what didn't I do? What could I have done? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's, I, I don't think it's, you know, the, the thing at the end where it says, is it a sad story? I don't necessarily only see it as a sad story. I wanted it to be a range of emotions, but I think there's always at the core of it, you know, this idea of the distance to your past and then the reflection on that. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think that people are touched by that too. They're, like you're saying, they're thinking about their own lives in relationship to that and whether that it's harbored as regret or harbored as, you know, uh, I'm going to do something now. Right. Uh, which would be the ultimate thing, right. Is somebody sees the film and goes like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take charge and try and help this person right now as best I can, that that would be great. You know, but I, but I, you know, I hope that it's universal in that sense of that it's, you know, cause it's a person, it was, you know, uh, people are complicated and they, they should be treated with respect and dignity and all these things, you know, and, and somebody asked me the other day, you know, why did it take 10 years? And I said, I turned the question back and I said, how long should it take to do a movie on someone's life? Three months? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a, it's a tricky question, but you know, but you know, I hope that we just, you know, try and do the best you can do. Right. in in terms of that, but I think you're right. You said honesty. I think that's an important thing, you know, that it has to ring true. It has to, you know, you got to get past the surface, scratch below the surface. And then just, you know, then you, then you get sort of sort of things peeking out that, that trigger other feelings. Oh, uh, absolutely. And I think that's, what's so remarkable about this because this is that story that we only most of us you know myself being one of those and i think most people are probably like me where they were familiar with this as a concept or an idea and not really a fully realized person where we we heard no oh, there was this guy that was in the band he went crazy and then all the stuff happened afterwards and that's it and that's all you hear uh for the most part and so you took a great deal of this film and focused on the man and not this isn't something that's like a uh, like a grief, it's not grief porn. It's not something that's exploitative in that way. It's not something that's dwelling in that side of it. It's about the whole of a person where you do see the lightness as well as the darkness in this man. And I think that while I've never met him, I have a much better idea of the concept of this person now and have a better appreciation of him, which I think in the end, that's all we would want to be remembered is for people to have a more fuller picture of ourselves when we leave, that they maybe have an understanding and not just one event or one side note or one anecdote that sums us up. That's, that's a big thing for me. That's a big win. <laughs> if, <that's, laughs> if, if that, if that is success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I don't like documentaries that exploit and there's been quite a few famous ones that have done very well that, you know, that don't talk about the creativity. They talk about just the bad side of stuff and, and I always wanted, I always want to know, like, wait a minute, how did they learn how to play music like that? <laughs> you know, yeah. or like, you know, things like that, you know, and, and it's, and it's just, it's, it is, it is a trope, right. To exploit that type of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe because 
we always thought of it as like, it's a long lost friend. You know, I didn't know Sid. I, you know, I met David and Nick when I did my film uh, on storm, you know, so I'd met them before, but, you know, we always thought of it as that, like, this is a, a, you know, it's a mosaic of memories of their long lost friend. And we're we're not going to put the jigsaw puzzle together perfectly. You know, we're going to leave spaces and holes and, you know, and, and, and that way, the audience would maybe fill in some of that stuff, like you're saying. And I, and I think the, you know, the best films that got me to want to make films did that where I felt like, wow, this is, you know, uh, you know, my friends, and I would sit and talk for hours about it, trying to figure it out. And I don't think films have to be, you know, I, I always say this, you know, film directors thinks, think audiences are dumber than they really are. You know, I think they can be more complex and, you know, certainly if you're doing a film about a person that you, you, you owe that to them in some way. Right. Oh, 100% agreed. And I think that in painting a very exact um, and detailed portrait where every puzzle piece fits together perfectly, it'll never be honest uh, because that's, that's not, you, you don't know, even if somebody is telling the story themselves and making their own film or writing their own book, they're dealing with memory. They're dealing with things that are in the past and you're looking back at it with reflection. You're thinking of it, not in the reality of that moment, but the way that you've contextualized it over 30, 40, 50 years ago and looking back at this time period. And is that honest to the time? I don't know, maybe, but I think that if you allow people and you talk to the things that are emotionally true that, you know, that's where people can make those connections. And if you try to paint it all into, this is what it actually means that this is what that truth means, then you're painted into a corner. And I think the audiences do push back from that. Yeah. You know, even with Mick rock, the section with Mick rock talking about the cover of madcap laughs, you know, I was friends with, I was friends with Mick and, you know, and when storm came to New York the last time before he passed away, I got them together with, for tea. They hadn't seen each other in what, 40 years or 50 years. And the three of us, you know, were in this hotel bar and I was, you know, the, the thing inside me was saying, Ask them who shot the cover image. <laughs> you know, get fi- get the final answer. But you know, neither of them will will ever say would ever say. You know, the the two of them. I mean, they joke around saying, "Well, the camera was there on the floor. <laughs> Mick would pick it up. I would pick it up. We were stoned." But it, you know, but that's you know, like pinning it down. You know, I didn't even want to pin that down. You know, I didn't want to say, "Oh." We're going to, we're going to solve the mystery now on that one, but I didn't even want to do that at that level. You know, it's like the thing when an artist explains the meaning of a song or the meaning of a painting and you had something much different in your mind. And then you finally hear what this was about. And it, there's a disappointment. It's if it's, if it's not the exact <laughs> thing you were thinking, you're like, Oh, well that kind of sucks. So yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, no, I, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think one of the things that storm, bonded with me about it was he was a film director mm-hmm. and i told him i said i figured out the hypnosis covers and he said what do you mean roddy one day in the afternoon i said i figured them out they're film stills that's why they're so interesting because when you look at them you're listening to the record you're thinking oh what happened before and what's going to happen after mm. and that's why the image is vacillating all the time and he said or oscillating all the time and he yeah said, oh interesting <laughs> so you know you know i think uh, that's that was one of the things that bonded and once he saw this this thing I put together and he said, did you re-edit my film? 
I'd re I'd recut his a music video he'd done. I said, "Yes, Storm. It had a bad edit in it. I fixed it." You know, twenty five years later. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, that's an audacious choice. What? How did Storm react? <laughs> Uh, he yeah he called me a cheeky bastard in an English way you know cheeky excellent bastard. yeah well but he so, it's interesting that he saw the cut change right away though that was kind of interesting that's incredible especially something that had that much of a distance I guess you you know it that well and you know so yeah. I mean yeah it's like the um, I have a couple trapper keepers filled with bad poetry that I know every word in that I haven't opened in twenty years and if I went back and saw somebody look through it they would. Yeah, I, w- I would know if it had been messed with. So but, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, there so I, how are people reacting to this? Because I know we're getting short on time because I personally, I really love this film. I think you've done something really special here that I think would speak to people that are diehard Pink Floyd fans that know this inside and out. But I think you would also speak to a much wider audience beyond even just people that are fans of music. I think you could speak to people who are just interested in human stories here. So I'm wondering, is that the general feedback that you're getting at this point? It's, you know, it seems like that because we, you know, we always knew there'd be the music fan. We yeah. always knew there'd be the Sid Barrett, you know, kind of nutters that would be have to see it. Um, so we knew we had that audience. But, you know, the hope was always that it was a bigger story in some ways. Uh, but, you know, maybe the like how you opened up the discussion is dead on. Maybe it's just timing. I mean, I've always said I've made great movies. They've all come out at the wrong time, though. You know, <laughs> well, but you, 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 you finally double dutched this one, man. You jumped into the right. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's maybe that's what's happened. But, yeah, no, it's 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 pretty incredible. You know, the first uh, sold out screening in New York, the the person that was doing the Q&A came and sat down next to me and he's literally was, uh, yeah, I've seen many rock music documentaries, but not so revealing. And he started tearing up and I was like staring at him and I started crying, you know, <laughs> the Q and a, and so it's pretty, you know, it seems to be touching a chord, um, which, which is great because, you know, that's always what I hope for. Right. Well, this is certainly a vulnerable and emotionally raw film that it, it will tap into something that I think that, you know, for people that are open to it, I think you could definitely have a very moving experience with this. And I, and I would love to be sitting in a theater with this and hear the conversations that are inspired by this walking into the lobby or be in a Q and a like that and hear what people are saying. Cause this is the type of film that will have a life beyond the frames of the film that it'll truly, I think this will inspire conversation. And th- those are my favorite ones. The ones that you were talking about before where you're in the, you know, you're walking out to your car and you're not forgetting the plot, you know, by the time you're opening the door, you're actually stopping and, you know, taking separate cars, but you're talking for 45 minutes, an hour and a half about the film afterwards, just dissecting it. And you end up on this totally separate tangent. And I could absolutely see that happening with this. So uh, yeah, that that's great. Yeah, no. Thank you. There's there's people that have already been messaging me saying that they they're going back to see it again. That's so great. It's, it's it's we haven't reached Star Wars fervor yet, but uh, <laughs> you know, but that's pretty. I, I I like that because that means that you know they they want to feel something again, you know, or see something, or take friends. So that that's that's fantastic news to me. And these are the uh, you know the Barbies and the Oppenheimers of the world. Um, I think people think of those as theatrical experiences, but something like this, to me, this, these are the things that are real communal theatrical experiences when there's certain moments in this, when you can, I know 
there's things that I felt when I was watching this, I would like to hear the silence in an audience when we're all kind of going through something together and reflecting on it. And I just think that'll be a really, for lack of a better word, a beautiful experience. So yeah, I just uh, really appreciate this, man. And congratulations. You got something Great. special here. Thank you very much, Christopher. Awesome. Well, it was really nice great to meet you, Adi. I enjoyed this one. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping really great. To, yeah, I hope I get to talk to you again because uh, I'm a fan. I'm on board. I, I want to see whatever you got coming down the pike next, man. Just well, hopefully sit. not 10 years from now. Let's get, let's get yeah, one yeah. out. I'll send you my film on Storm if you want to watch that. I would I would love to check that out. Yes, yes. absolutely. Get me your email through Carol or 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 who or who'd you go through? Sarah? I went through Sarah, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sarah set it up. Yeah. So I'll okay, give yeah. her she has my email address and I'll just yeah, please forward it on and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You should take Absolutely. a look at that. Yeah. I will. Yeah, I would love to because uh if it's anywhere in the neighborhood of this, I feel like you can as much as this is reflective of Sid Barrett's story. I can feel the imprint of a creator here as well. And I, I want to learn more about you through these films. So yeah, I'm excited to check that out. Great. Thank you very much, Chris. Awesome. Take care, man. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. It's great. Yeah. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
voice crack.